Good morning, all souls. My name is Hannah Andreatis, and I am delighted to be with you this morning. For those of you who don't know me, um, my husband and Jeremy and I have been attending All Souls for almost five years now. Um, I'm also a deacon at the church with Lee Beth and a team of others. Uh, my day job, when I'm not here, is that I am a hospital chaplain at Emory Midtown. And fun fact, I attended the same seminary as Stephen. Um, different times, but same place. And so when I was preparing for this sermon, I had to laugh because last time I came and preached, uh, I just shared about like despair and suffering and lament, and you guys had a really fun time. Um, and this time I was like, oh, Stephen's kind of throwing me a bone. He's like, come talk about discipleship and faithfulness. It'll be fun and light. And so I want to go on record telling you that I'm a really fun person, okay? <laughs> I have witnesses here. You can ask them afterwards. But I am really excited to dig into this text with you. Um, if you'll pray with me, and then Jen will come and read our scriptures. Good and holy God, it is so good uh, to be together, to be with you, um, to have the privilege and the honor to open up your word and study it together. Lord, would you just bless each one of us here, open our hearts, open our ears, that we might listen and hear a word from you. Amen. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. So I tend to follow the traditional motif, right, beginning, middle, end, when I read a story, but it was the end of this text that really caught my attention when I first read it. As far as I know, nowhere else in the Bible does Jesus offer such unmitigated praise of another human, saying she has done a good deed, a beautiful thing, and that wherever the gospel is preached, she will be remembered. And I was like, oh, she got a gold star for Jesus. How do I do that? And that's not how this works, right? Praise God. But I would be willing to bet that at least some of your brains work a little bit like mine. And maybe as you read that, you felt that itch that, oh, she did it. I can do it. Let me just figure out what it is, and I'm going to get my gold star. Yeah, and again, not to spoil the ending of this whole thing, but there's no gold stars to receive here. Um, but, but I do think this text has something to say to us and even to say to that impulse that we have, right? That impulse to impress and be the best and most efficient gold star Christians. So as we turn to our text, I just want to remind us of where we're situated in the Gospel of Mark. If you joined us on Ash Wednesday, you heard Stephen preach about the two verses on either side of this story. 
the first two are about the religious elite who are trying to kill Jesus. They're plotting. And then the last two verses are about Judas's betrayal of Jesus. And so then there's this story that we're talking about today that doesn't really relate to that. Um, and this is what scholars call, they call it a Markan intercalation. Um, I call it a sandwich. And I brought this really helpful diagram so that we all know what that looks like. But Mark does this. He's a really good writer. And all throughout his gospel, he does this over and over again when he wants us to really pay attention. He holds up two things that you're like, what are you why are you talking about these? This doesn't make sense. But it's because he wants to hold something in relief. These stories are talking to each other. And so if the bread of our sandwich that Stephen preached right, was about Judas's betrayal and our faithlessness, then Mark says, look, this is the meat and cheese. This is the PB&J, whatever sandwich filling you like. This is the stuff in contrast. This is a story and a model of faithfulness, of faithful discipleship. And in particular, I think this story tells us something important about our identity as disciples. It tells us something important about the identity of the one to whom we are disciples. And finally, it shows us and tells us something about what discipleship may require of us. So let's dig in. We're going to start with what this text has to say about us, and we're going to start at the beginning in verse 3. Mark sets it up, and he tells us that we are in Bethany. Bethany is a suburb outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is the seat of power and culture, the place where Jesus will go in just two days' time to both fulfill and subvert the prophecies and the hopes of the Jewish people. Bethany, on the other hand, is the city from which he comes riding on a donkey. It is an unimportant place, full of unimportant people doing unimportant things. And yet here is Jesus and the company of his friends, in the house of a leper named Simon. Now, it's unclear in Mark's account exactly who this man is, but what we do know is the implication Mark is getting across, that this person is or was a leper, and they are an outcast. They are unclean, and yet we have come to expect, as readers of the gospel, that there is Jesus, lying on his side, reclining at the table, in comfort and at ease. And then all of a sudden, some unnamed and presumably uninvited woman busts in the house carrying a big jar of perfume. And she walks up to Jesus and she breaks it open and pours out this oil all over his head. And the other guests, who I think this is reasonable, right, they start to freak out. They're like, what are you doing? This is a waste and a mess. There's sharp pottery everywhere and oils on the table. What are you doing? And who do you think you are? Right, this is not only like extravagant and wasteful, but it's also pretty embarrassing and sort of shame, scandalous, right? Women in this time didn't have power or status on their own. It was only in relation to men, to their fathers, to their husbands, to their sons, that they had security and wealth and privilege. And so even though we are here in a room of anonymous, unimportant residents of Bethany, and even though we are in the house of a social outcast, it still stands out. Mark still wants us to notice how scandalous it is that this woman would dare to enter in and then to do something so outrageous. But Jesus says, leave her alone. Can't you see it? She has done something beautiful for me right now in this moment. And for this, she will be remembered wherever the gospel is shared. 
In this story of unimportant people and outcasts and lepers, this unnamed, unimportant woman is declared the faithful disciple, the one to be remembered. Right, and Jesus' actual name disciples, Peter, John, James, the whole team, they might have been at the table, we don't know, but they have been scrambling and clamoring for this kind of praise, this kind of acknowledgement and status. They have been working so hard to get their gold stars for Jesus, and they ask him for them all throughout the Gospels, right? And we laugh at them and we giggle because, oh, it's so foolish and silly because we know the end of the story, but also maybe we recognize sometimes that that is us too, right? The world is constantly asking us that question. Who do you think you are? Prove it. Show us. Show us that you're powerful and you're wealthy and you're wise and you're funny. And while you're at it, that you're kind and generous and humble too. Maybe if we're honest, we also do this in our faith life, right? We want to know we got it right. We want to know that Jesus approves, that our faith is good enough and our tithe is big enough and our community group is connected enough and our concern for charity is visible enough. There was um, a small football game last week. Um, for, it was Team Red and Gold versus Team Gold and Red. Um, good sports. Um, but in between the good sports, there were a lot of commercials, very expensive commercials. Uh, and if you watched this game, or if you've maybe just been on the internet since then, you've probably heard about the ad by a religious group. It was a series of vignettes of people washing the feet of other people who seemed very different from them. And at the end, the, the screen said, Jesus didn't teach hate, he washed feet. And all this week, my social media timelines have been filled with people Christians, peers, colleagues of mine who are outraged about this ad. One of their main complaints is that this was a 60-second commercial, and it cost $17.5 million. Think about how many people you could have fed with that money. Now, this commercial full disclaimer is very complicated. It has complicated, I didn't show it for a reason, like complicated content, backstory, political connotations. There's plenty of room for both praise and critique. But I could not help to think of our text this morning, right? These friends of Jesus, these faithful-ish ones sitting around the table, they're outraged. The word means that they were snorting with anger. And if you've been on Facebook recently, you know what snorting with anger looks like, right? They're like, this money could have been used to feed the poor. And they're not wrong. Jesus cares greatly about feeding the poor. He affirms that here. He's been doing it all throughout the gospel. But the mystery and the weirdness of this whole text is that Jesus is the one who interprets the woman's actions as faithful. This thing that looked so wasteful to his friends, he says, this is faithful. And we don't even get to know her intentions, right? We don't know who she is, why she was there, what compelled her to come do this. Maybe she wanted something from Jesus. Like, I don't know. But I do wonder how often we are the friends at that table, right? We want to interpret not only our own faithfulness. We want to say we've earned our gold star, but we also want to interpret the faithfulness of others. And Jesus here is just reminding us that he is the one to interpret our discipleship. And here in this room, he says, the one who is faithful, the one who will be remembered anytime we share the gospel ever, is not one of the religious elite. 
It is not one of my close friends and named companions. It isn't even one of these guests here who have a valid and righteous concern for the poor. Rather, it is this powerless, uninvited woman. And we don't even know her name. And to be clear, I think Jesus does know her name, right? We have a God who knows and calls us by name. But the point is that she is rather remembered not because of her name, but because of her faithful action directed towards Jesus, right? We don't remember her because of who she was or her power or her status or her gender or her wealth. We don't remember her by her job title, by her husband and children, by what car she drove, by how charming and lovely she was. We don't remember her by any of those identity markers, those things that the world has us clamoring for, has us using to name ourselves. No, she's remembered because for some reason, something inside of her recognized something really important inside of Jesus. And so she came and she stepped out of all of those cultural identity markers and she took a risk, a really big risk. And she did the thing that she could do to acknowledge who Jesus was. And it was embarrassing. And it was risky and messy. And she was rebuked and she stayed silent. She didn't defend herself. And Jesus said, you have done a beautiful thing to me and you will be remembered. Friends, faithful discipleship has the chance to define our identity, not in all the things that we do or have, but in our relationship to Jesus. And in a world that so wants to define me, myself, by just being more than and louder than and working harder than and getting more gold stars than someone else, this is such a breath of relief. But it's also really hard because this kind of discipleship requires us to figure out if we're okay with being anonymous and being embarrassing and at times being silent Faithful discipleship has a chance to define our whole identity in our relationship to Jesus. So if discipleship, this text is telling us something about who we are as disciples, this text is also telling us something really important about who Jesus is. So we're going to look a little deeper at this act of anointing, uh, this pouring of oil and break it down because we live in 2024. And at least in the circles I run in, um, this is not standard dinner party practice. If you're doing this at your house, please invite me over. I want to know more. But for the people in the room with Jesus, right, and as well as Mark's intended audience when he's writing this story down 40 years later, this action carried a lot of meaning. It was really important. And so it's important that we understand that. So we're going to do a little word study. And I'm sorry, but biblical languages were my favorite subject in seminary. So you're going to have to hang with me for just a minute. But there's two words here that are important, a Hebrew word and a Greek word. The Hebrew word is mashiach, and the Greek word is Christos. Now, you might hear in those words or read on the screen uh, the way that we often use those words, Messiah and Christ. And those are titles that frequently get used for Jesus, right? We call him Jesus Christ. But Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, that is a title. It is a word. It's a description that means something, and it meant something very specific in these contexts. So we're going to start with Hebrew because it's older, but the word Mashiach, Messiah, it means the anointed one, the one smeared with oil. And this comes from this ancient practice in Israel where prophets and priests would anoint new kings. Uh, 
They would, they would cover their heads in oil to indicate this is God's chosen leader. This is the person consecrated for the role of king. And so over time, this word anointed one just comes to mean king. And then over time, that word comes to mean a very specific king. It's this promised coming king that we read about in the Hebrew scriptures, this king who would rescue and liberate conquered Israel. These messianic hopes, these hopes for the Messiah, the Messiah, they were deep in the Jewish community of Jesus' time because Israel was long-suffering. And this is what the disciples were hoping for in Jesus, a literal political king who would come and overthrow the government and restore their vision of goodness and the kingdom. And so when this woman comes in and literally anoints Jesus' head with oil, right, this is a prophetic and politically powerful act that the Jewish people around the table would have or should have understood. This action, this anointing says, here he is, the Messiah, the long-awaited king. Now we're going to zoom out. We're going to get a little meta for a minute. So that's the story that's happening. And now Mark is writing this story down 40 years later, but he's writing it in a different language to a different group of people. So Mark is writing in Greek, and he's talking to a culturally Greek audience. But when he translates the word Messiah, Messiah, it's Christos in Greek. It also just means anointed one. It's like a, just a literal translation. In the first verse of Mark's gospel. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And again, reminder to us, Christ is not his last name. This is a title. But, but Mark's readers would have heard that as just the word interpreted, right? And the idea of being anointed, being covered in oil wasn't unfamiliar in Greco-Roman culture, but it did not mean the same thing. It had to do with like bathing and athletics, right? So you have to imagine how confusing this would have been to an early Greek Christian they're sitting down to hear Mark's gospel, and he says, welcome. This is the beginning of the good news of the story of Jesus, the Son of God, covered in oil. So Mark has like some explaining to do, right, because that doesn't make any sense. And so that's a lot of what the gospel of Mark that we have been working through over the past several years, pointing again and again and again to why this matters, what this means. And so for his audience, for Mark's audience, for us, when this woman fulfills that declaration, when this unexpected act of discipleship and anointing brings to completion the idea that Mark set up in his very first verse. We have been waiting all along to see, will Jesus be the one? Will he really be the anointed king, the Christos, the Messiah? And her action says, yes, here he is. This is your king, long awaited. However, there's this second meaning also of this anointing, and this one Jesus explains himself because it's a little less obvious to the people in the room. Anointing someone with oil is not just a practice of kingship, but it was also an ancient funeral practice. Covering a body with perfume was how they embalmed and honored the dead. So while the people at the table are caught up about the money and the waste and the mess, they've missed the kingship piece and then they miss this other piece. And Jesus says, hey, look at what she's done. She's prepared my whole body for my burial. She understands what I've been trying to tell you. Because this is the other half of the message that Jesus has been trying so hard to get his disciples to understand through this gospel. Right? Yes, 
I am the Messiah. I am the anointed king that you have been waiting for, but this isn't going to look like what you thought it would look like. There's going to be suffering. And over and over, Jesus predicts his death, and over and over, the disciples miss it. And then this unnamed woman anoints him with this faithful response that no one else in the gospel has given him, this holding together of both Jesus' kingship and Jesus' suffering. Right On one hand, we have Peter, who a few chapters ago declares clearly, like, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one, I get it, yes, I've been waiting. And then just one verse later, Peter can't fathom that this Christ, this king, would suffer. And so when Jesus begins to explain his suffering, Peter rebukes him and says, stop, stop talking like that. And on the other hand, we have Judas, right, also waiting for this king. But after this anointing, Judas now clearly understands. He has a firm grasp on the idea that Jesus is serious about this. He is going to die. And there's no way that this person who's going to die could be this long-awaited king. They don't go together. And so Judas betrays him and sells him out. And it's only this unnamed woman who somehow holds both pieces for us. Faithful discipleship requires us to hold both the kingship and the suffering and the lordship and the death, the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. And when we miss one or we miss the other, we start to miss the whole thing, right? Our discipleship becomes directed not towards the anointed king, not towards Jesus on the cross, but rather towards our own vision of the kingdom and our own understanding of the good life. And we all do this, right? It's really, really hard to do this well, to hold these two things that feel like impossible realities together. Even when we know the end of the story, it doesn't make sense. And I find, I have found that most people tend to sort of lean one way or the other. We have like a proclivity of what kind of disciple we are. Um, so we have like Easter Sunday Christians who are like, yes, resurrection, glory, celebration, let's go. And then we have Good Friday Christians who are like, oh man, everything's terrible. And like, let's just sit in the suffering with Jesus um, I'm that kind. I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, but the problem with that is that we miss something. Both of us miss something when we don't take into consideration the fullness of Christ in our discipleship. So in my job as a hospital chaplain, I work a lot with people who are dying and with families around the time of death. Um, and one of my goals is to make sure people have the things they need, to have uh, a meaningful and peaceful transition at the end of their life. And a few years ago, it was Holy Week. In fact, it was Good Friday. Um, and I had a patient, a Catholic gentleman in my ICU who had been declining for a long time and his time had come. Um, it was nearing the end. And he had told me previously it would be really meaningful if um, a priest from my parish that I've been a member of could come and bless me, do an anointing of the sick. And I said, I would love to call them. Let me work that out for you. So it's Good Friday. I call his parish and this woman very lovely woman answers the phone. I explain the situation and she says to me, oh, well, um, I don't know if you know, but Easter is in two days. And so we're really busy preparing and I don't think anyone can come out. And I, I just hung the phone up, which was like super unprofessional um, because I was like, I don't know what to say to you because it's Good Friday, right? It's the day we like acknowledge and honor Jesus's death. And for me, 
right? The Good Friday Christian. I was like, we need, it's so important that we acknowledge and honor this man's death. And in the end, he got what he needed and we were able to bless him and his family. But afterwards, when I was reflecting on this story, I had to laugh, right? Because here were these two kinds of, of disciples, right? This Easter Sunday secretary and me, the Good Friday lamenter. And the problem is we, we were, neither of us were wrong, but we both missed the bigger picture, right? The way that these things have to fit together and that we get to hold them in tension. And so here we are. It's the first Sunday of Lent. We're beginning that season where we prepare our hearts as we walk towards Holy Week, as we walk towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And I just want to offer this invitation for us to consider, to spend some of your Lenten time maybe examining your discipleship, your heart, and thinking about what kind of disciple am I? Am I a Peter or this lovely secretary kind of disciple who wants to jump towards hope and just skip over all the hard stuff? And maybe that means in this season, there's some space for lament and for wrestling with that difficulty with Jesus. Or maybe you're a little bit like me and like Judas, and you're like, man, I don't know, I'm pretty comfortable wrestling in the muck and I have a little bit of a harder time with the other stuff. And maybe this season is an opportunity for you to practice. What does it feel like to claim and declare the resurrection and the victory that Christ has won for us? Friends, faithful discipleship requires that we hold both of these things together, both the kingship and the suffering of Jesus. Third and finally, I just want to talk about the model of discipleship that this story offers us. Mark like, can't be bothered to tell us this woman's name, but he goes out of his way to let us know that this is very expensive perfume. He spends like a third of the verses doing math, telling us it's a year's salary. Some translations talk about how many denarii it is. Uh, it's a lot of money, okay? This is very expensive. And so this woman comes in and she takes this very expensive perfume and she breaks the jar. Now it was common uh, with pottery at the time, you know, you have a vessel with like a thin neck. You might snap the neck off of a vase like this so that you could pour out what you needed and then fasten a new lid so that you could get more use out of this vessel because pottery was expensive. And I don't know if any of you know much about pottery, but um, I told them in the first service, I just started taking a pottery class and I'm embarrassed about how many hours it has taken me to make like a really like lopsided mug that only kind of holds liquid. And so the idea of breaking a piece of pottery intentionally makes me want to throw up. <laughs> Okay, but especially because in this verse, it is not the normal verb to break that we see all throughout the New Testament, kaleo, which just means break. It's this other verb that's because it's called suntribo, and it means to crush, to shatter, to break into little pieces. This woman didn't just snap off the neck and give Jesus a little bit. The first use of this jar, knowing she could get more value from it, no, she shattered it into little pieces, breaking it completely. And then she pours it out. Not just a little, not just enough that would be appropriate to do this anointing. No, she dumps the whole jar. She empties it. And while we don't know the details specifically of this woman, theoretically, though, women didn't own things. Right? So even if this woman was from a wealthy family, this jar, this was her 
security in the world. This was probably something like her wedding dowry, her entire safety net, that if things went wrong, this was all she had. And she shatters it, and she empties it for Jesus. And this is like this beautiful metaphor, and it's like a really nice image, but can I be honest that this kind of discipleship is like not a good time? This is not pat ourselves on the back, show others our faithfulness kind of discipleship. This is that gut-wrenching, unsatisfying sowing of seeds and praying for fruit that you may never see kind of discipleship. This is not just giving what is comfortable. This is giving up everything. And this is the very model that Christ shows us just a few verses later in this same chapter, when at a very similar table, with perhaps the very same people sitting around it, just like this woman broke this vessel and poured out this perfume and was to be remembered, Jesus breaks a loaf of bread and Jesus pours out a cup of wine and he tells his disciples that not only is that to be done in his memory each week when we come to the table, but it's this kind of self-giving, emptying, irreparable breaking and pouring out that Jesus is about to do on the cross for each of us. And it's the same thing he calls us to embody and to practice in our discipleship to one another. I had an experience this week uh, with a person in my life who was very difficult. And there is nothing like writing a sermon on faithful discipleship for Jesus to say, okay, bet. So I was already just at like the very end of myself and my bandwidth after weeks and weeks and honestly years and years of pouring out and pouring out and pouring out everything I had in this relationship, I just felt really empty. I felt like I would collapse if anyone like breathed on me wrong. And then what felt like out of nowhere, this person reached out and they rebuked me harshly. They spoke with that harsh indignation that we talked about in our text, and it wounded me. It like touched a deep place in me and stirred up so much anger in me. And to be honest with you, this sermon was sitting open on my laptop. I was in the coffee shop working on it as I crafted just the most perfect, snarky, eviscerating text message. It was really good. <laughs> because I was right. I had the moral upper hand. They deserved every word of that text. And grace of God alone, I looked up and saw this passage on my computer. Man, and can I tell you that choosing not to send that text message, but rather to turn the other cheek, to break myself open again, to pour something out with some appropriate boundaries, man, it was one of the least glamorous and most frustrating acts of discipleship that I've ever done. And I want to be clear about two things in this story. The first is that this was not an instance of abuse, and that is a very different situation. Jesus does not ask you to continue to break yourself open to your abusers, and so if that is the situation that you are in, please know it is nuanced, and our pastoral team and our deacons and our elders would be um, happy to come alongside you. But the second thing is that I'm, I don't share this to be like, look at me, I'm so faithful, I did it, right? Because it was not me. Because everything I had was that anger and that rage 
And maybe it was justified even. But rather, it was Christ in me, this fullness of the grace that I've already been given, that pulled my eyes back to the scripture, right? That deleted that message, that reminded me that even in my hurt, in my anger, in my emptiness, that I was still called to love and to honor this person, and that it was out of Christ's fullness that I could respond differently. And like, I wish I could be like, and now I feel great, and everything's, I'm, I don't, I'm still mad. I'm still tired and exhausted. The situation isn't solved. And maybe you've been there, or maybe you are there. Maybe this is in your work, or in your parenting, or in your marriage. I don't know what this looks like for you. But I wonder if there is some tender and wounded an empty place, a place that you want to seal back up and callous over because that would be so much easier. But maybe a place that God is calling you to something different, that God is reminding you that God has something for that place in you. Friends, faithful discipleship at times is going to break us open and pour us out. So now that I've told you all these fun things, um, right, discipleship is going to be embarrassing and you have to like hold together two impossible realities and um, you're going to have to open yourselves up to hurt a lot. You're like, oh yeah, Stephen, she's fun. Bring her back. We like this. Um, But stick with me. We're almost done. And I feel like there's got to be some reason that makes this worth it. And so thank goodness Thank goodness that God's love for us is not a zero-sum game. God's love for us is not those men around the table calculating exactly how many people could have been fed. That God's love for us is not an economic equation of discipleship in, grace out, faithfulness in, happiness out. Right? Discipleship is this mysterious thing. It's this thing that comes out of us as a response to the grace that we have already received. It's not something we strive for and earn and work hard to get our gold stars for Jesus. It is this precious and beautiful invitation that we get to join in with the work of the Holy Spirit to shape our lives and mold our wills and form our hearts to be more and more and maybe just a little bit more like the very one who created us and redeemed us and walks with us. This kind of discipleship is costly and it is difficult some days. But it is also beautiful. And it is a way that we get to participate in the renewal of the world. Diedrich Bonhoeffer is one of my favorite theologians. Um, He lived this kind of faithful, costly discipleship out in a really um, extreme sort of way. For those of you who don't know his story, he was a German Christian in the early 20th century, and he refused to bow down to Christian nationalism and the Nazi party. And in the end, his discipleship cost him his life as he was imprisoned and killed in a concentration camp. And in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he says that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And our text this morning is reminding us that that is exactly what discipleship requires us to do. It requires us to die to our own sense of identity and security that the world offers us so that we can be open to the secure identity that Christ offers us. 
It requires us to die to our vision of king and kingdom, to our vision of the good life, even to our vision of suffering and death so that we can see and participate fully and freely in the kingdom of God. And it requires us finally to die to our instincts of self-preservation and protection, our holding in, our gathering, our holding back, so that we can open ourselves up to all the beauty and the pain, the grace and the sorrow and the joy and the life that Christ came to give us. Because, at least for me, (laughs) trying to hold together my own sense of identity and titles and then gathering and accumulating and achieving the good life and satisfying all my desires the way the world tells me is great, it hasn't really worked out for me. It does in the short term for a season, right? And some of those are good things. But in the end, all of those things are dust. And like us, to dust they will return. Bonhoeffer goes on to say that this kind of discipleship is costly because it will cost a man his life. But it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Friends, our faithful discipleship is a response to the good and beautiful and costly grace that Jesus has already won for you. We've already been given this gift of life, and it's from this deep and restorative and nourishing well that we get to draw as we practice discipleship messily and imperfectly and beautifully and with one another in community. We don't have to earn any gold stars. There aren't any to earn. Instead, we are called to place all of our, de- all of our identity in Christ. We are called to remember and to hold tightly to the fullness of who Christ is. And then we're called to look for those places where we can remember what it means to break ourselves open and to pour out of that well of abounding grace. Amen.